Good morning. Uh, we're going to be in God's Word this morning in Ephesians chapter 3. Uh, if you could just turn there, uh, man, it's a great message this morning. We're looking at the inside story of the Christian life, Ephesians chapter 3, 14 through 17. All right. So who likes the inside story? Answer, we all do. We all do. Um, the inside story is something that, you know, we kind of like. We think it's helpful. You know, we are like, hey, you know, I want to understand more about people, why they do what they do, why you do what you do, why you are who you are. You know, the inside story is helpful. Growing up as a kid, every Saturday morning, I watched cartoons. And I know that like now with Netflix, that's kind of like a thing that we don't do as much, right? Like, because um, you can watch cartoons all the time. But growing up, Saturday mornings is when they were on. It was amazing. But I would watch this show called The NBA Inside Stuff with Ahmad Rashad. There's a few people that have seen that show. Yeah? Okay. Some that haven't that feel really alienated once again by sports here at Fellowship Raleigh. Uh, hey, listen, it's just the point is this. I love the show because it helped me understand like the backstory behind some of the, the, the players and athletes that, that I was really excited about watching. And you know, it's just nice to know the inside story. There's books upon books written about Princess Diana. You know, who really was Princess Diana? There's one book called Diana, Her True Story in Her Own Words. And they are using uh, tape recordings that she had made that have been recently discovered. It's amazing. So listen, Ephesians 3, 14 through 21 really takes us into the heart of the Apostle Paul, but it also takes us into our own hearts. There's uh, one uh, Anglican bishop who said of this passage, and the quote will be on the screen, who has not read and reread the closing verses of the third chapter of Ephesians with the feeling of one permitted to look through the parted curtains into the holiest place of the Christian life. This is an amazing part of Ephesians. It's the prayer of the Apostle Paul closing out these chapters, Ephesians 1 through 3, that have been focused on glorious grace. And what we get in these verses is the inside story of the Christian life. Why do I say that? Because Paul's focus, particularly in the first two parts of his prayer, is on the inside of the Christian life. Not what's out here, but what's in here. And that's the focus. And so, and we know, and you know this is true, right? You know that the inside story does not just give you context or information about your favorite celebrities or characters in world history, right? It doesn't just apply to them. It applies to you and me too. It applies to us. What's going on inside of us also shapes who we are. Why we do what we do. You and I have an inside story. What is it? What does God want it to be? These are the things we're discussing this morning. In the next two weeks, I'm going to look at this prayer at the end of Ephesians 3, 14 through 21. We're going to see five lessons from Paul's greatest prayer. And this morning, we're just going to look at the first two. Quickly, I'll put them up on the screen for you. You can see them right there. Here they are. Here's the first two that we're looking at this morning. Prioritize interior spiritual life. 
And second, invite Jesus to abide in and rule my whole heart. All right? So I'm going to read these uh, verses to you. You can see the points that are coming next week. I put them there for you. But five lessons from Paul's greatest prayer. We're looking at the first two this morning. So let's read it. Ephesians 3, verse 14. I'm going to go through the second, or about halfway through verse 17, I'm going to stop and pray. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. God, we we bow before you. We ask, Lord, that this prayer be answered. This prayer be answered at Fellowship Raleigh Church, God, that we be strengthened in our hearts through your Spirit, that Christ dwell in our hearts by faith. We be a place where you abide and where you rule, Lord, not just in theory or in talk or in name, but God, in substance. People would experience Jesus as they come into contact with people of Fellowship Raleigh Church. And so, Lord, we just praise you and we thank you for this morning. Uh, help us to understand your word, Lord. Illuminate it to our hearts and minds. In Jesus' name, amen. The inside story of the Christian life. Five lessons from Paul's greatest prayer. Number one, prioritize interior spiritual life. The interior, not the exterior. You know, you can see like a really fancy car, lots of accessories, and you could say, man, that, that, that person has it made. They are amazing. You haven't seen the interior of their car. You haven't seen the interior. You don't know what's going on inside. Prioritize interior spiritual life. That is to be our priority. You know, when we see what Paul is praying for for the Ephesians, it it gives us a sense of the priorities for them as Christians. This, not a bunch of other things, this is what Paul chose to pray about. Their spiritual life on the interior of their lives. There are so many things. We could could do another time at the microphone. Everybody come up, share a prayer request. You know, we have so many things that God, and he cares about all of them. And he calls us to cast our anxieties upon him and to bring everything before him in prayer. And there are lots of things we could be praying about. But what the word of God is saying this morning is that here's a priority prayer request. One that's more important than those things. Prioritize interior spiritual life. Paul's like, for this reason, verse 14, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. In verse 13, Paul, uh, we talked about this last Sunday, but Paul said that he was asking us 
not to lose heart. Verse 13. And so when he says in verse 14, for this reason, I think he's kind of referring to that, right? Like, for this reason, I kneel before the Father. I bow my knees. You know, it's a good thing to pray in many forms, right? Pray as you're driving to work. Pray in the shower. Pray, you know, at the bedside of your children. Pray at the kitchen table. Pray in all kinds of ways. The Bible says to Christians, pray without ceasing, right? We pray in all kinds of ways. But you know that there are some times when you're like, okay, this situation is too heavy. And I hope this happens in our lives, right? All of us, right? That there are times, this situation is too heavy. I'm really going to pray about this one. Like, let's kneel. Let's pray. You know? That's what Paul is saying. He's like, everything that I've been talking about in Ephesians 1 and 2 and 3, all this this vision for the Christian life and this vision for the church that what divides the world should not divide the church that Christ has brought together the Jew and Gentile to be one family in the blood of Christ, all of that profound vision, he's like, this is heavy. I kneel before the Father. On my knees, Paul says. He says, the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. So, so Paul is just modeling for us, you know, prayer. Um, truth and Christian practice is oftentimes better caught than taught, right? He's modeling it. It's an example. Here's how to pray. Just like Jesus said to pray, when you pray, say this, our Father who art in heaven. And so Paul's like, I'm praying to the Father. He says, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. So Paul, he's been talking about this, and he's got this scope of the whole world, all the nations in his view, right? And he's been talking about this in Ephesians. He's like, Paul, he's like me, a Jewish Middle Eastern man, and you, Ephesians, Asian Gentile Christians at the church at Ephesus, and you, Fellowship Raleigh, Westerners, the whole world. He's like, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. That's the Father he's praying to. Why does he say it like this? Is this just like a throwaway prayer phrase? What's he saying? Is every family named after God? I'm pretty sure that's not accurate. I know there are some families, Christian families, that work really hard to use biblical names for all 12 or 13 of their kids, right? Amen? We know that. But, like, is every family named after God? What is Paul saying? From whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. Well, Paul named Adam. I'm sorry. God named Adam. God named Adam. God named Adam. God named Jesus. And, and every person on earth is either in Adam or in Christ. Every person on earth is in Adam. Every person in heaven is in Christ. And so there's some truth to what he's saying here if you look deeper at it. But I think that, that what's encouraging about what he's saying here is he's, he's been talking about the way God in this mystery that we've been talking about is bringing together all nations and the church through Christ. And I think it's like, just imagine that you're looking at a world map. You're looking at all the countries, you know, Russia, Ukraine, 
You know, you're, you're looking at China, you're looking at Saudi Arabia, you're thinking all these names, these nations, these families around the world, right? And when you look at it, Paul's like, here's how I look at it. They're, they all share a common creator. Not just Israel. Everyone is created in God's image. Everyone has this common creator. It's, it's just that they're lost. So he's praying to the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. This just extols the sovereignty of God over nations and families and countries and everybody. What's the request for? Here it is. It says that according to, do you see it? The riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power. So Paul is asking for Holy Spirit power or divine enablement. He is asking according to the riches of God, not out of the riches of God, right? If you go up to a billionaire and you say, hey, could you give me a little money out of your riches? They could give you like a dollar. That's, that's technically out of their billions. But if you say, could you give me some money according to the billions that you have? That's asking a very wealthy person for a very generous gift. That's what that is. And that's what Paul's doing. He's saying, according to the riches, and God is very rich, of his glory. Glory means weightiness, majesty, the riches of his glory. He may grant you. Watch this. Paul's like, we're applying for a grant right now. Grant you. You can't do it. God must grant it to you. Grant you to be strengthened, that's in the passive tense, strengthened, God's strength coming into your life, strengthened. So it's a grant, it's passive, we're doing nothing here, with power. How do we get this spiritual power? Let's keep reading. That according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit. Through his spirit. It's been said that the Father plans salvation, the Son accomplishes it on the cross, and the Holy Spirit applies it in our hearts, which I think is in view here. Now, when we ask, how does this work? How does the Spirit give us this strength? I think we should acknowledge there's some mystery to it. Jesus talks about the Holy Spirit's work is like the way that the wind blows the trees. In John 3, you don't always see and understand perfectly what's going on. So there's some mystery to it, but it's not all mystery, okay? I mean, we see in Scripture, wherever the Spirit of God is at work, the Word of God is at work too. The Spirit and Word go hand in hand in tandem. In fact, in Ephesians later, Paul will say, be filled with the Spirit, and it results in encouraging one another, singing hymns. And then in Colossians, from the same prison cell, he'll say, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly that results in encouraging one another, singing hymns. It's like they are two things that bring the same results. They go hand in hand, the work of the Spirit and the work of the Word. So I say that because we're asking the question, how do you get this strength of the Holy Spirit? I think it's reasonable 
to think that Paul is envisioning the Ephesians gaining Holy Spirit strength as they feed themselves on the Word of God. Word of God is pictured as strengthening and nourishing food and milk and meat. And it, it fills us and it strengthens us. All through Scripture, this is the picture. So how do we get this Holy Spirit strength? I think it's reasonable to say that at least part of that process is feeding on the Word of God. But where does the strength go? Let's ask this verse where it goes. According to the riches of His glory, that He may grant you to be strengthened with power. How? Through the Spirit. Where? In your inner being. The New American Standard says the inner man. Our point is the interior spiritual life. One of my favorite scenes from a recent movie, Nacho Libre, (laughs) says, the nun asks him, where's your robe? He says, these are my recreation clothes. She says, they look expensive. He says, thank you. They may have the appearance of riches but beneath the clothes is the man. And beneath the man is his nucleus. (laughs) It's the craziest quote, but you'll remember it like I did. The inner man, the interior, the heart. 2 Corinthians 4 says it this way, we do not lose heart. Remember, Paul just prayed that they not lose heart. Same thing. We do not lose heart, though our outer nature is wasting away our inner nature is being renewed day by day. Through spiritual strength, through the Word of God. Prioritize interior spiritual life. That's lesson one from Paul's greatest prayer. Now let's look at lesson two quickly. It is to invite Jesus to abide in and rule my whole heart. Invite Jesus to abide in and rule my whole heart. Verse 17, the first part of it, it says, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Another translation says it this way, that Christ may settle down and be at home in your hearts by faith. Make a note of this. Verse 16, the person who is filled with the Holy Spirit, the person who is strengthened through the Spirit in their inner being, goes straight to verse 17, the person in whose heart Christ dwells by faith. There are no bus stops in between. It's a nonstop flight from verse 16 to verse 17, no layovers. It happens that way when the Spirit strengthens us. Christ is at home in our hearts. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts. The heart in the Bible is the seat of our emotions, the command center and core of a Christian's life. That's the heart. What does it mean? What is this talking about? Have you even thought about this? Again, really think about it. Don't just get lost in the prayerish language. Like, Think about it. Why is Paul saying this to Christians? 
Is, isn't the definition of a Christian to be someone that you've already invited Christ into your heart? Like Christ already dwells in your heart. That's true. Paul, you said it somewhere. Like, why are you telling the Christians at Ephesus? Why are you, Paul, praying that the Christians at Ephesus would have something that they have? What's happening here? Let's ask that question. Let's read it again. So that Christ may dwell. The word dwell literally means deeply rooted, settled down at home. That Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. The point here is not do you have Jesus in your heart. Rather, it's about how settled in, how comfortable, how at home Jesus is in your heart and life, how surrendered you are to his rule in your life. Over time, when you live somewhere for a while, and particularly when you gain full ownership of a place where you live for a while, what happens? You begin to really make that place your own, right? The place where you live, the place you own, the place you dwell for a while, it starts to feel like you. It starts to look like you. It starts to sort of represent you. The idea is that our hearts, our lives, would be like that house where Christ is deeply settled, such that we represent him so well. John MacArthur says, this is not about the fact of Christ's presence which every believer experiences. Rather, this is about the quality of Christ's presence. Another person says, the indwelling Christ is a thing of degrees. So, I was going to share with you this book. It's really more like a booklet. It's very small. My Heart, Christ's Home. And I've got like 10 of them that I want to give away. Five for service. Five. Um, There it went. It's very small. Um, But... uh, This is a book written by a Presbyterian pastor in uh, just a generation ago, and and he's talking about our hearts being Christ's home. It's based off Ephesians 3, uh, verse 17. Let me read to you uh, this quote from the book, and what he does is he depicts your heart as a home. So here's a quote. I will never forget the evening I invited him into my heart. What an entrance he made. It was not spectacular, emotional thing, but very real, occurring at the very center of my soul. He came into the darkness of my heart and turned on the light. He built a fire in the cold hearth and banished the chill. He started music where there had been stillness and harmony where there had been discord. He filled the emptiness with his own loving fellowship. I have never regretted opening the door to Christ, and I never will. So that's the very beginning of the book. And he continues to go in, and he basically just breaks down the different rooms of the house of the Christian's heart. He talks about the study, the room of thinking, of opinions, of wisdom, of the books you read, of your computer. And he tells the story of Jesus coming in that room and saying, can I be in here? And he talks about the experience of being in there with Jesus and how he rethinks things in light of that. He goes to the dining room, the room of appetites and desires. 
a living room, a place of fellowship with Christ, a place of relationships with others, the place of you know, our associations and our entertainment. He goes to the workroom, the basement or the home office or the garage or the place of career, the place of money, the place of hobbies, the place of toys and talents and gadgets. And Jesus is there and he, he, Jesus is, says, can I, can I settle here? We're not just inviting Jesus into the foyer of our hearts, right? He goes to the hall closet that's closed. And Jesus is like, what's that bad smell? And he's like, oh, I've got some things hidden in there. The place of secret sin that's locked, the place of the hidden thought life. And Jesus says, are you going to let me help you with that? Are you going to surrender that to me? And finally, at the end of this little booklet, Jesus just asks him, do you want to just transfer the title completely over to me and and let me really dwell, abide, and rule your life? And it's just this profound story, and it's so convicting, and it's based off verse 17, which I'll read again here, so that Christ may dwell, be at home, settled down in your heart's Through faith, through faith, the ongoing dwelling and permanent settling of Jesus in the heart of a Christian is through faith in him. This is not passive faith, but this is true Christian faith where we choose, listen, where we choose to love and trust in Jesus and believe his promises to us more than we love and trust and believe the promises of self and stuff. Through faith. We do this in the ordinary and day-to-day areas of our life, i.e. the rooms of our heart, not by works, through faith, but not passive faith. Active faith in Christ just like salvation that he talked about in Ephesians 2, that it is by grace that you, Christian, have been saved through faith. So we are talking about five lessons from Paul's greatest prayer. Number one, prioritize interior spiritual life. Number two, invite Jesus to abide in and rule my whole heart. I want to close with four applications quickly. Four applications. If you're taking notes, there will just be quick four applications. Number one, inner strength is not in you. The world says you just got to tap into the strength within. The Bible doesn't say it, though. The Bible doesn't say that. So if you're saying that, you're saying something the Bible doesn't say. Anna Freud, Sigmund Freud's daughter, says, I was always looking outside myself for strength and confidence, but it comes from within. It was there all the time. Wrong. Yeah. Paul's like, yeah, I have the opposite plan. I'm on my knees praying that Christians would be strengthened, would be granted strength from outside of themselves into their inner being. Inner strength is not within you apart from Christ. Number two, we cannot do what God 
wants us to do in our lives or in our churches in our own strength. We need the Holy Spirit. Number three, the top priority in my life and those I care about should be the the interior spiritual life. That's hard to do. We live in a society that constantly works against that. This summer, the women in our church, some of them are doing a book study. The book study is founded off this famous quote by Dallas Willard who says, hurry is the great enemy of spiritual life in our day. You must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. Like, number one priority. You see, Paul's like, this is the thing that I'm praying about for the church. Spiritual life inside. Mary and Martha in Luke 10, right? Martha's busy doing important things. Mary, Jesus says, Mary has chosen to do what is better. Martha wasn't doing things that were wrong. It's just about priorities. The number one priority in my life and those I care about should be the interior spiritual life. Lastly, the Christian life is not inviting Jesus into the foyer of our heart, but we must invite him to abide in and rule our whole hearts. So as we close the service and have communion together this morning, let me invite you to offer your heart to the Lord, to to make that your prayer, to dedicate yourself to him. And so let's, let's bow and close in prayer.